This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Hi there, Dr. Jen Lincoln here. I can't come to the phone right now, but we'll likely have an opening later on. Please leave me a message and I'll be at your cervix. I mean, <laughs> service in no time. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Let's Talk About Down There podcast. I'm your host, board-certified OBGYN, Dr. Jennifer Lincoln. And this week, we're talking about something a bit more serious than some of the topics I've covered in the past, and that is unfortunately related to cancer. And this is a question I got from a caller a few weeks ago, and I think it's just a great overview While this kind of cancer, we're talking about cancer of the vulva, that's the outside part of the vagina, not the inside. While it's not super duper common, I think overall talking about these sorts of things helps to make us aware of things that we aren't taught about. And it helps us to really understand how important it is for us to know what's normal with our body so that we can keep an eye on things. And then that way we can seek care if we're concerned about something. So we're going to jump right into this question and then we'll break it down. Hi, Dr. Lincoln. I have a question that may be a little bit less common or unique. My mom actually passed away eight years ago due to uh, vulva cancer. And then oddly enough, this past year, I lost my grandma to the same cancer. I've been told it's extremely rare that one in 5,000 women or one in 4,000 women are diagnosed every year. And somehow two of my relatives that have no biological relation have passed away due to this nasty, nasty cancer. So I guess my question is for me moving forward, are there things I can be doing preventatively um, to make sure that I'm not also going to be dealing with the same cancer? Is there any genetic testing that can test for vulva cancer? And really, what are the best next steps for me? So if you could just help me out, um, that would be great. Thanks. So to my caller, I want to say I'm so sorry for your loss for your mother and then also for your grandmother. I think that is just so hard when we lose people who are close to us. And I can only imagine how stressful it was that you've had two relatives who've had the same kind of cancer and you're wondering what you can do to decrease your chances of having something like this. So not only dealing with a loss, but also trying to figure out where does this factor into your own life? And it is true that some cancers are hereditary while others are not, or we think they're not hereditary, but the reason we think that is because we just don't have the testing yet to be able to determine if they are. And very quick review on how we do genetic testing When we are looking for something hereditary, it means we have to know what mutation caused a particular susceptibility to a cancer. I think the one we're most familiar with when we hear about genetic cancer testing is breast cancer, right? And the BRCA or the BRCA genes for that. And so in those situations, we have no mutations that we can test for and we can say, yes, you have this mutation, you're at risk, or no, you don't have this mutation. And then as you can see, if we don't yet know what has led to a cancer, that means we can't test for it. So I can't say in your particular case, if this is something that is hereditary, in general, these sorts of things aren't, but I can absolutely see why you're concerned and why you want to be informed and empowered. So if there is any sort of genetic predisposition that you can try to prevent it. So let's spend today talking about vulvar cancer, what you can do to look out for it, decrease your risk, and to understand treatments and those kinds of things as well, because I think 
even if this is something that's not that common, knowing about it means that you know more and you may be able to not only help yourself, but a friend or a family member one day. So first, some information about vulvar cancer. It's not one cancer. There are different types. And so different flavors of vulvar cancer are squamous cell cancer. So these are the types of cancers that start in the skin cells of the vulva. And within this type of cancer, there are different subtypes of this. And don't worry, we are not going to dive into the OBGYN gynecologic oncologist explanation of all these cancers. That's far too much detail. We're just going to do a broad overview. There's also another type of vulvar cancer called adenocarcinoma. So that's cancer that's in the gland cells of the skin. And this is pretty rare. About eight out of every hundred vulvar cancers are this kind. And I'm getting this information from the American Cancer Society, and I will absolutely link that in the show notes. There's also other types of cancers such as melanoma. So these are just like melanomas you see elsewhere on the body, but specifically on the vulva. Also rare, as you can imagine, because these things tend to happen when you're exposed to the sun. And most of us don't go around with our vulvas exposed to the sun. I can't say that for all of us, but the the vast majority of us are, are not sunning ourselves down there, which is... There's so many reasons, but that whole trend I saw on TikTok a while ago of like sunning your vulva and your anus, like here's a reason why you shouldn't because you could increase your risk of melanoma. So they're rare. We see them in about six out of every 100 cancers of the vulva. There's another kind of cancer called sarcoma. These are cancers that we often see in the bones or in the muscles. Very rare in vulvar cancer, about two out of 100. And then lastly, basal cell carcinoma or basal cell cancer. This is the most common kind of skin cancer that we see and is very rare when it comes to the vulva. So when we say vulvar cancer, and for example, in this caller's question about vulvar cancer, I don't know specifically what type it is that your family members had, but we can talk about generalities for all of these. And specifically, there are kinds of cancers that are associated with having the HPV or human papillomavirus. And then there are other kinds that have nothing to do with whether or not you have HPV. Overall, cancers of the vulva are pretty uncommon. Only about 0.7% of all cancers in women or people with a vulva have this kind of cancer. So it's rare. And in the United States, we have about a 1 in 333 chance of developing some kind of vulvar cancer at some point in our life. I know 1 in 333, when you first hear that number, you go, oh my goodness, that's not that rare. But when we compare this to other types of cancer, like breast cancer, where our lifetime risk is one in eight, that can kind of help reset kind of how common we think or how uncommon actually vulvar cancer is. So to think of this in another way, the American Cancer Society, when it comes to the number of cases of vulvar cancer in this country in 2023, about 6,470 cancers of the vulva will be diagnosed. And of those, about 1,600 will die of this cancer. So that can kind of give you an estimate when we think on a larger scale, not only what's the chances you'll get it, but also the chances that you'll, you will die from it. For many types of vulvar cancers, there are things that come before it. And I frame this, I think we're all more familiar when we talk about cervical cancer and we understand because we are going to get our pap tests, which the whole purpose of that is to prevent or decrease our risk of cervical cancer. Because what your provider is doing is they're taking a sample of cells from the cervix. Those are going into a test to the pathologist. They can look under the microscope and say, hey, I'm seeing some low grade or high grade changes. These are things that we see well before cancer develops, and so we're able to intervene beforehand. Now take that same sort of idea and let's apply it to certain types of cancer of the vulva. We can do the same thing where if we saw something 
that worried us and we took a biopsy and looked at it under the microscope, we could assign it the same sort of naming. And so the language has changed. You may have heard of terms like vulvar intraepithelial neoplasia, which is now called high-grade squamous intraepithelial lesions of the vulva or vulvar H-cell. Long story short is that these are all a collection of changes that we see under the microscope. And when we see them, we can intervene sooner before these things become cancer. We are seeing that vulvar cancer is becoming more common with a four times increase from the 1970s to 2000. And there are probably lots of factors related to that. I'm not going to go into that today. But the good news is, is that it can regress in many, but that still doesn't mean it's never going to cause issues. It might not require increased surveillance or it could come back and cause cancer. So once we have this diagnosis, we need to pay attention a little more closely. When it comes to what causes vulvar cancer, the vast majority are HPV types that lead to cancer. So just like HPV infection, if it doesn't go away or regress on its own in the cervix, it can cause cervical cancer for some people. Same thing happens with cancer of the vulva. They can cause cancer of the vulva in the same sort of way. Another huge risk factor is smoking. And yeah, you're going to see the same thing. All of these are exactly the same with cervical cancer. And the reason we think that smoking interferes with this is that it decreases your body's immune system and its ability to clear that HPV virus and also being immunocompromised, same sort of thing. So just a quick refresher on the HPV virus or the human papillomavirus. It's a super common virus. I call it the common cold of the vagina. And that means that between 80 and 90% of us who are sexually active at some point in time will be exposed to this virus. And for the vast majority of us, it causes no issue. But for some of us, it can cause these abnormal precursors that we see in the cervix and the vulva. Yes, in the mouth and the throat and the anus, all places where things might go during sexual activity, which means also the HPV virus can go. And so if we can decrease our chance of being exposed to this or optimize our health so our body can clear it, you definitely increase your chances of not having problems related to HPV. So how do we diagnose vulvar cancer? Here's kind of the downer. We don't have routine screening for looking for vulvar cancer like we do cervical cancer and pap tests. Really, what it comes down to is if we see something abnormal on your skin, we can biopsy it. And things that might be concerning are lesions or spots that are different colors. So they could be dark or light. They could be flat or raised. They could have irregular borders. They could change in size. They could bleed easily. Kind of the same sort of thing you think about when maybe you've been taught how to look for skin cancer. Basically, anything that concerns you, we should know about so we can decide if we need to biopsy it. And before we do that, we can do something called a colposcopy to help us know how concerned we need to be or if there are additional places to biopsy that we can't see with the naked eye. Which brings me to class is in session where we hit up this week's teachable moment. Welcome to the health class you wish you had in high school. This week's teachable moment is all about colposcopy, also known as why does a gynecologist clinic sometimes smell like a salad bar? Yes, I said that. So let's talk about colposcopies. Okay, if you Google colposcopy, what you'll see is essentially pictures of a healthcare provider staring into this thing that looks like a microscope on wheels or like binoculars on wheels. And that's really what it is. It's us being able to use magnification to see either your cervix or the cells of the, the vulva or the vagina. And we not only use this magnification to get a better look to see if there's more concerning things that we can't see to the naked eye, 
but we also apply something to the skin or to the surface to sort of light things up and guide us even more. And so what we commonly do is after you're in the, you know, sort of the usual setup that you might be for a pap smear. So specifically if we're doing a vulvar colposcopy, we apply acetic acid to the area where we're looking. Yes, I'm talking about vinegar. So this is why when we have, I remember in training when we would have specific colposcopy days in clinic, you knew it was colposcopy day or what we called colpo clinic because it smelled like vinegar, it smelled like salad dressing. And, you know, we, we joked, we're like, oh, this is so very unique. It doesn't bother us at all, but truly the acetic acid, it is absorbed differently by cells that have abnormal changes. And so they sort of light up in a different way and they can guide us if we need to do a biopsy. And if we see something that's concerning, we can use a tiny biopsy instrument where we're able to remove a tiny piece of tissue, put that in a container, send it to the pathologist, and they're able to look at it under the microscope. This gives them more information than just your regular pap test on a cervix, or like I said, since there is no really no real test like that for the vulva, this is their way to say, okay, we see something that looks concerning. Now, when it comes to vulvar colposcopies, rather than doing kind of the same biopsy that we do on the cervix, we can get the sample in a bit different way and that's just because the skin of a vulva is a bit differently. So we can numb it up and then we can do something called a punch biopsy or a shave or an excisional biopsy, basically different techniques to be able to remove a tiny part of the vulvar skin done in a way so you're comfortable and it's not painful. So we send that off, you go on your way, and then what do we do? What do we do in terms of treatment? If any sort of biopsy sample comes back as that vulvar H-cell, that high-grade abnormality, just remember it's not cancer yet, but high likelihood that it could progress to cancer, we recommend removing it. Now, sometimes there's something called occult invasion, which means that we aren't totally sure where the border is, and there could be some invasion that, even though we think we've removed the whole thing right around that weird looking spot that just doesn't look right on the vulva. I shouldn't say weird because it's not weird. I don't want you to think it's shameful, but my point is I'm trying to say this skin abnormality, you know, we're worried it's extending and we just can't see it, it's microscopic to the eyes, we'll do something called a wide local excision, which means that the goal of that is to have about a centimeter around the area of normal tissue as well, so that any abnormalities that might be microscopic are also removed. If we're not concerned, or we think, you know, that we're able to get away with a smaller incision, we can do something called a smaller excision, taking just a smaller area, or we can also do something if we're not worried that it could be cancer or has a high risk of becoming cancer, we can do laser therapy or topical treatments, which I'll talk about in a moment. Of course, as you can imagine, there are things on the vulva and near the vulva that are really important to us, like your clitoris, like the urethra, the hole where the pee comes out of. So while the goal is that we, if we're doing a wide excision and we're getting more of that normal tissue around it, we also need to balance it with the fact that we don't want to damage the clitoris or the nerves of the clitoris or the urethra. So sometimes we have to be a little creative in how we do that excision. Now talking about laser therapy. So yes, we, we love lasers for drone shows and you know to like play with our cats. This is a different type of laser. And again, we can do this if we are not really worried about cancer. So how we do this is we start off doing colposcopy again to better define the edges of where the laser needs to be and using the laser, the person who uses it, and they have special training in this. I myself have never done them. I've been in the room when others have, but you go through special training and you can set the depth and, you know, to try to make sure that you get all of the lesion and the same goal of having those clean margins, of course. Lastly, when it comes to topical treatments, there's one drug that's called amiquimod, and that is a topical treatment that can be applied a few times a week for a long time, like a few months. 
And the goal is that it's important that you're checked on with colposcopies, you know, every month, month and a half to monitor the progress of this treatment. This is good, again, if we do not think you're at high risk for cancer and you're wanting to avoid a procedure. There are side effects, however. These medicines, when they're applied, obviously in a kind of a sensitive area, can cause some pain and redness. And you may still need surgery if it doesn't totally regress. It may not work as well if your immune system is compromised. So if you've got something else and you're on immune suppressing medications, such as like autoimmune diseases, rheumatoid arthritis, or if you're smoking. And there are other creams and topical solutions out there as well that have been tested, but this is one of the main ones. So cool, you've, you've done these treatments. Again, these are precancerous things that you've had treated. Can it come back? And the answer is yes. And this is why surveillance matters. Different studies have shown different recurrence rates, somewhere between 10 to 50, 50%. And as you can imagine, it depends on what kind of the lesion was, what kind of the treatment. And really it's lowest in people who are treated surgically and have clear margins. And I think that makes sense. It's the most extreme treatment, but it's also the one that has the highest likelihood of being successful. And surveillance means self-exam and office visits. And yes, I said self-exam. So I have a question for all you who are listening today. When is the last time you've looked at your vulva? And I don't mean like you've glanced down at it when you were shaving or just when you were wiping or putting in or removing your tampon. Like when have you really sat there with a handheld mirror and looked at it? And don't be ashamed if the answer is, I have no idea if I've ever done that because I also can't tell you the last time I've looked at my vulva. And that means that I need to. So I'm right there with you. We do all these other things, right? Sometimes we go to the dermatologist for skin checks. We are you know, constantly keeping an eye on things that we can see. But have you ever actually looked down there? And I know you're saying, well, I go to my gynecologist once a year. Isn't that enough? And I'm a, I think that's a great thing. You absolutely should continue to do that. But just like we talk about breast self-awareness and being aware of any changes in your breasts, I would ask that you keep an eye on that. So especially for my caller, who wants to do everything she can to not get vulvar cancer, this is a great thing to do. And it doesn't mean that if you see something down there, it's cancer. There's lots of other things that can develop down there, um, different cysts and different you know, growths and sometimes ingrown hairs, but it's so much better to know what's normal for you and if something changes to get it checked out sooner rather than later. So like I said, get yourself a handheld mirror, just, you know, pop a squat in the bathroom floor, take a look. Don't be ashamed. If you have any concerns about what you see, feel free to reach out to your provider and know that there's nothing dirty or shameful or weird about your vulva. They're all awesome and cool and we want them to be cancer-free. Okay, so let's specifically now talk about vulvar cancer and what happens once you're diagnosed, which could happen after a biopsy comes back and shows actual cancer. Again, just like there's not one type of vulvar cancer, there's not just one stage of it. So we do something called staging, which is a little bit complicated, but in essence, it gives us an idea of how advanced or how concerned we need to be about your particular cancer. There are different ways that different cancers of the body are staged. And for vulvar cancer, we take into account a few different things, such as how big the lesion is, how deep it goes, has it spread to any nearby lymph nodes that drain that area? Has it spread to any other parts of the body? How abnormal does it look under the microscope? And so based on this, a cancer can be assigned a stage, and that's helpful because that also helps to guide treatments and also an understanding of just how concerning your, your stage and your type of cancer is. In general, stages of cancer range, you know, you might hear stage one up to stage four, and vulvar cancer is similar. And in general, the lower the number, the lower the, the level of, you know, concern, the less it spreads. So stage one vulvar cancer, 
we would much rather have that than, for example, stage four vulvar cancer. And when it comes to survival rates, we are also able to better inform people based on their stage. So for example, some studies have shown that vulvar cancers that are very localized, not too deep, not too abnormal, the five-year survival rate is about 86%. However, with those that have spread to other organs or what we call metastasized, that five-year survival rate drops drastically down to 19%. So that's another reason why understanding staging can be important. Treatments can involve surgery, and so thinking of surgical excision like I described before, but much more intense, trying to get much more tissue, removing lymph nodes, potentially removing other organs of the pelvis if they're spread, as well as combining it with chemotherapy or radiation. And it really depends on what stage it is, what specific type of vulvar cancer it is. And if you receive a diagnosis of vulvar cancer, you would be referred to a specialist in these sorts of cancers. So a gynecologic oncologist who not only can operate, but can also help manage your radiation your chemotherapy if it's needed. Also working with a team of radiation oncologists, potentially medical oncologists, a whole team together. It's a lot. It's really intense. And this is why the best thing we could do if we can prevent getting vulvar cancer obviously sounds a lot better than, than having to deal with all this. And that leads me right into, okay, so how do we prevent all this? Can I tell you the number one thing I would love for you to do if you haven't done this already, or you've got a young person in your life who has a vulva, so you know, a daughter, a niece, a sister, a friend, HPV vaccination. And I want you to know that the HPV vaccine has been remarkably studied, like billions of doses have been given out there's the quadrivalent or the nine-valent HPV vaccine, and these are vaccines that are effective against the types of HPV that are associated with cancer. There are hundreds of strains out there. There's just you know a certain few that are the highest risk for cancer, and these are the ones that can be spread via sexual contact, which includes oral sex, anal sex, those kinds of things. And we have seen that the HPV vaccine has been shown to decrease the risk of vulvar H cells, so those high-grade abnormalities, which could then progress to vulvar cancer. So it's huge. We usually start vaccination between 11 and 12. It can be given younger in certain ages um, if need be, and you can have it later too. So let's say you're 29 and you go, oh my goodness, I never got this. Should I get it now? You absolutely can. You can even get these vaccines if you've already been diagnosed with one type of HPV because it can protect you against the others. And it's currently FDA approved in the United States up to age 45. It doesn't mean it magically stops working after age 45. That's just what it's approved for. That may also affect insurance reimbursement rates. But if you have not been vaccinated or you only got one shot and didn't complete the series, talk with your provider about getting this life-saving, cancer-preventing vaccine. The other thing, you know, I'm going to say it, no smoking. Seriously, if there was one thing I learned in my residency training, Colpo Clinic, all the time was to say, I need you to stop smoking for so many reasons. But if you want any chance at decreasing or clearing your body of this HPV virus, which you've already been diagnosed with, cutting down the smoking is the biggest way to go. I could go on and on about that, but truly. And if you're like, Jen, that's a tall order, I hear you. It's not that easy for a lot of people, and I get it. So anything you can do, if you cut back even by one a day, that's a huge win, and you just try the best that you can, and you can also partner with your provider. We've got other treatments we can talk about to help making quitting smoking easier. Other thing, you know, obviously the best way to not get exposed to things like HPV or to not have sex at all 
or if you are going to do it, do it safely using condoms. And while we can be tested for HPV as the people with a cervix and a vagina, there's no test in men. Don't get me started. Topic for another day. But it's not like you can be like, well, go get tested like you can for chlamydia. And then you know your partner is negative, so you don't need to use condoms. Well, unfortunately, we don't have that. So if you're having sex with more than one person or anybody at all, and you're just not sure, using condoms can be really important. And that includes traditional condoms as well as dental dams if you're participating in oral sex, because like I said, it can also spread to the throat and the mouth and can cause HPV-associated cancers there. Now, of course, these are only talking about cancers that have to do with HPV, not the other types of vulvar cancer. So maybe, you know, don't sun your vulva, no matter what TikTok tells you, you should do <laughs> regular exams. Like I said, going to the gynecologist or your healthcare provider who does that for you, and also checking in on your own vulva and just keeping an eye out for anything that seems abnormal. Those are the best things we have at this moment in terms of prevention. So here, I didn't mention anything about any genetic tests because we're just not there. Things are changing rapidly, though, in this field, especially in genetics. So who knows? In five years, we may know a bit more about that. And, you know, certainly the second I know, I will let you know. So before I wrap this up, we have to do the clitorally segment where I'm busting common myths and misconceptions. And I'm saying clitorally, literally, are you kidding me? I've actually got two this week because they just both were perfect. This first one is about trying to lighten up your vulva. So this is a TikTok about doing just that. So this customer texted me. She said, girl, I need products that are going to lighten my coochie. Summer's around the corner. I'm trying to be outside. So I said, girl, you need to check out our turmeric collection. She said, tell me which products to buy. I told her to get the turmeric bar, turmeric mask, and turmeric body wash. So now her coochie's going to be brighter than ever. And she's going to be feeling amazing. Enjoy. Yeah, so except I'm not going to enjoy that because... First of all, you know, you know me, I love like anatomical terms. I don't like the word coochie, but that's not even what I'm going to focus on today. What I'm focusing on is this idea that our vulvas need to be lightened up. And I have gotten so many DMs asking about these sorts of things um, about Dr. Jen, is it normal that my labia are darker, you know, or the area by my thigh, you know, th that thing is darker than the skin elsewhere. And the answer is absolutely. It's related to hormones. And this idea that you have to lighten it up I feel like it has a lot of racist undertones of like, dark is bad, lighter is good. And especially on the vulva, that is very sensitive, where you're applying something, you're distorting the appearance. Maybe there is something dark there and it's actually a problem and it needs to be dealt with and putting on this turmeric mask cream, whatever, to lighten it up may actually delay diagnosis of something that's actually a problem. So I literally say pass on this, please. No, no, my friends, we're not gonna buy that. Okay. And this other one, oh, this one, this one's just, you know, I said it's for fun. I put that in my notes. Um, it's not fun at all. So this is a TikTok about managing your HPV naturally. And it's from somebody called the Yoni Nutritionist. So we've already got red flags and I've got other podcast episodes about how to, you know, identify misinformation online. And this is like all the red flags. So let's have a listen. Things that I would never eat as a vaginal health nutritionist, HPV edition. HPV is the most commonly sexually transmitted infection among sexually active adults. There are over 200 types of HPV, 40 of which are sexually transmitted. And the most common sexually transmitted types of HPV are cervical dysplasia and genital warts. And HPV infections like cervical dysplasia and genital warts are very easy to manage with a holistic approach. And this starts with your diet. 
Number one is inflammatory foods. This includes gluten, dairy, and sugar. These foods can cause inflammation in the body and weaken the immune system. And because HPV is a virus, it relies on your immune system to be able to manage it. Number two are processed foods, junk foods, and fried foods. These foods are so unhealthy and usually loaded with artificial ingredients, sugar, and all kinds of crap that we shouldn't be eating anyways. Number three are bad fats, like trans fats found in margarine, saturated fats found in many animal products, like steak, for example, and processed oils such as vegetable oil and canola oil. These fats are not good for your body, can cause inflammation in the body, can weaken the immune system. This was a very high level overview of the foods that I would never eat to manage HPV infections. If you want to learn more about the specific foods that I recommend that helped me heal my HPV, the supplements that I recommend and lifestyle practices, like and follow for more and sign up to my HPV healing guide. Of course, there's an HPV healing guide. Of course there is. Um, I would like the disclaimer that this idea that you're going to self-manage your HPV, if that's the only thing you're doing and you are not partnering with your healthcare provider for potentially recommended treatments, that's super dangerous because HPV causes cancer. And so we can't screw around with that. So let's break down um, the managing HPV naturally points that she highlighted. So basically, according to her, no gluten, no dairy, no sugar and um, you'll be good to go. That doesn't sound super fun. And I think overall, if we take away the things that she recommended you don't eat, I totally disagree with. I think it's all about the things that she recommends or things none of us should be eating in large amounts. And it's all about the dose makes the poison. So your HPV, it's not going to go away because you cut out gluten. I'm just, I'm sorry. Anytime that you hear somebody constantly talking about inflammation, inflammation in a non-scientific way, in a global way, and, and attributing all of these things to being the demon and the reason you can't clear your HPV is somebody who doesn't really understand science or how these things work. And this video got 300,000 views. Um, and yes, she's here to sell you a product. She's talking about supplements. And I'm her overarching message, which if we watered it down, would be, hey, you know, the way that you make you quote unquote optimize your immune system is you eat pretty healthy and, you know, you probably lead a pretty healthy lifestyle. Like that would be it. That would be good. I would also add in things like, please don't smoke. And we've already talked about that, but no, you're not gonna, I'm not saying you shouldn't cut these things out if they're causing you legit issues, but this is just totally made up and they're trying to sell you something. So let's summarize real quick what we discussed here. Vulvar cancer is rare and there's different types that we reviewed. We don't have genetic testing or a known link in families, but that doesn't mean you still can't be proactive about decreasing your risk. The most important things you can do, get your HPV vaccine. Don't smoke, get your regular exams, have a healthy lifestyle so that your immune system is you know, doing its thing, but there's no need to be extreme. Most of all of our cancers are slow growing, and that means they give us time to intervene. And lastly, don't fall for HPV diets or lightening your vulva. Your vulva is pretty amazing and doesn't really need you to buy a whole lot of products. I hope that helped. And if you've got any other questions related to this or other types of things, you know how to get in touch with me. Happy checking out your vulva. You're going to go do that right now. You're going to get your hand mirror, take a look down there, and let your provider know if you have any concerns. Till next time, my friends, stay safe. Okay, it's that time where I ask you to rate, review, and follow on your favorite podcast app because we know that's how we get more people talking. So call in at 503-893-2016 and join me online at Dr. Jennifer Lincoln. 
So let's keep the conversation going, my friends. Call in, leave a question, and know that it's okay to have questions about your body, and we're going to answer them. 